0: Good leadership is really caring about the people who you're working with and the people who are working for you and uh, spreading a cheerful optimism and confidence, even in times of, especially at times of crisis. Uh, Get down on the factory floor, um, you know, really um, mingle with the troops, Don't, don't stand aloof.
1: Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. No one has done more than John Bell to bring Shakespeare to Australians. Trained at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Great Britain in the 1970s he went on to co-found Nimrod and then Bell Shakespeare in 1990. During its uh, more than 30 years in operation, Bell Shakespeare has performed to more than 3 million Australians in schools, in cultural centres uh, and in communities. It has performed some 29 of Shakespeare's 39 plays. John has since stepped down as the head of Bell Shakespeare, but at 80, remains active and has just written a book titled Some Achieve Greatness, uh, about the lessons for leadership we can draw from Shakespeare. John Bell, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Fine, Andrew. Nice to be here.
1: So I was asking my 12-year-old in the car on the way to school this morning, can you imagine at age 15 deciding that you, what you were going to be? Not just a broad profession, but deciding that at age 15 you were going to be a Shakespeare actor. And my 12-year-old said he thought that was a remarkable decision. It strikes me as pretty remarkable too. What was it about the way you were turned on to Shakespeare that meant that by age 15 you'd made this your life's passion?
0: Well, I think as so often it comes down to good teaching. I was fortunate to have two very, very good English teachers in my high school years, and both of them were men who loved theater, they loved poetry, they loved Shakespeare, and they saw my response to it, and uh, my, my uh, willingness and, and uh, enthusiasm to perform it, and they both encouraged me very strongly to uh, take it up as a career when I finished school, which in, in those days was rather unusual advice not when their parents wanted to hear particularly.
1: I understand one of them uh, had a particular love for A Midsummer Night's Dream.
0: That was the first one, the first Shakespeare I ever encountered. and He was uh, quite a remarkable teacher. And instead of getting us to read the play, he simply uh, performed it for us. Every, Every English lesson he'd take on a scene and he'd play all the different voices and he'd walk up and down the aisles, gesticulating and declaiming and describing the sets and the costumes and the... And so he brought the play alive for us, and it wasn't a a book anymore, it was a a live performance. And I think that was what really thrilled me, and I wanted to do something very similar.
1: Increasingly these days, uh, Shakespeare is being uh, taught to elite students, but less so to the, the vast bulk of students who go through schools and universities. Um, for me, it was my high school English teacher Judith Anderson that uh, uh, opened my eyes to Shakespeare. But you also talk about uh, some clever ways in which Shakespeare's insults can be used to uh, engage students in the Bard. Yes,
0: I think that's one exercise that uh, our educators in the schools, the, the, the Bell Shakespeare Company has a team of uh, players who go into schools and perform. And one of the exercises they use is to give the kids uh, a string of Shakespearean insults and line up and and hurl them across the rim at each other. And the kids find the language so exotic and extraordinary and remarkable that uh, they understand that language can be something more than just the everyday commonplaces that we use.
1: You've got uh, two daughters, Lucy and Hilary, who are both uh, actresses. Uh, What what did you do as a father to inculcate their love of the the theatre?
0: I didn't do anything uh, active to encourage them, um, nor we did, did we discourage them, but they came along to the theatre all the time and they often slept on the seats when they were very small when we were rehearsing and they just grew up with it. And uh, for, a, for a while they resisted it, but they, they thought they might go and open an old dog's home or something instead. Um, <laughs> but little by little, they uh, you know, began to show um, interest in performing. And as it turned out, Hillary, my elder daughter, is now a a writer, a playwright, and Lucy has taken up the acting profession. But um, I don't think you should ever either force something onto kids or discourage them, let them find their own way, and they'll either take it up or not, according to, uh, you know, their own personal response.
1: Your Shakespeare journey uh, involved a a five-year stint in the UK uh, working as part of the Royal Shakespeare Company. To what extent did that experience of being out of Australia also allow you a sense of uh, artistic freedom to to, to shape yourself in a way in which you might not have gotten if you'd, you'd stayed in Australia as an actor?
0: I think the main advantage was to work for five years with some of the best people in the business. With the Royal Shakespeare Company, they had an amazing uh, assembly of uh, actors and directors, and uh, that's where I really learned my craft. Was just watching them and being in the same room with them for that uh, five years, and I wouldn't have had that experience in Australia. Although we have the talent here, we didn't have the structure and the range of uh, theatrical uh, ability. Uh, um, uh, we didn't have the, the range of um, circumstances that would allow you to uh, to work with that that, that calibre of people all the time. So that was really my, my education in theatre. and um, But when I came back to Australia, I realised that that was something foreign to us, that it was a, an English way of doing Shakespeare that was e- a very excellent in its own way. But uh, to do Shakespeare in this country, we had to find our own way, our own voice, um, and our own set of... Um, relationships and yes. how we perform it.
1: You're at Sydney University with uh, Clive James and Jermaine Greer, uh, both of whom then went on to spend the bulk of their careers in the UK. Uh, but you really used that British time in order to give yourself a set of skills, which you then came back and reinvested in the Australian community by first co-founding Nimrod and then founding Bell Shakespeare. Uh, Had you always thought of yourself as a a creator of organisations or or did you create those organisations out of a sense of frustration that uh, they they just weren't there?
0: Uh, You're right, the second time around, yes, the first time with the founding of the Nimrod Theatre with my partner, the late Ken Haller, we decided that um, theater needed more of a a sort of a a Alarican edge to it. The theater at the time, I'm talking about the early 1970s, was fairly uh, respectable. And most of the content was um, foreign classics and overseas plays, the latest West End or Broadway hit. But there was very little being done in the terms of encouraging Australian writing and Australian theater. So um, with the Nimrod, it was a pretty uh, rough and ready kind of um, uh, theatrical setup, um, but we were encouraging new writing all the time, uh, including uh, indigenous writers and women writers. And uh, so that was, was a, a very necessary thing to do. We weren't the only ones doing it, there was the, uh, the Australian Performing Group in uh, Melbourne at the Pram Factory, had we doing something very similar. So there was just that movement, I think, in the 1970s, uh, a new kind of nationalism was starting to emerge which supported that, um, that wave of writing and enthusiasm for Australian content. As for the Bell Shakespeare Company, uh, that was a similar urge. Um, uh, we felt there wasn't enough Shakespeare being performed in Australia. Um, and if so, there wasn't a, a kind of a, a reliable standard. It was a bit hit and miss. So we wanted to form a company that would give actors the chance to work on their craft and work on those texts uh, over and over so they'd become more uh, proficient in playing them. So in both cases, you you were right. There was, I felt, a necessity for something to be set up.
1: It's always struck me there's such a contrast between the two. One is about uh, opening the space for new voices to be performed on the stage. Uh, The other is is about performing only the plays of a uh, dead white male. Uh, Did you see that as being... Uh, a tension between the two, or was that sort of your evolution in terms of what you felt the Australian theatre scene needed?
0: Well, I think the two things, the the new writing and the classics, are are kind of uh, on the same uh, level playing field. They they should uh, play off each other. If you only have the new writing with no reference to the classics, then uh, you're living in a sort of uh, rather restricted area with no historical memory. If you only perform the classics, then you're not allow, allowing any new voices to arise. And that's one thing I did learn from the Royal Shakespeare Company, that they did maintain a company in Stratford-on-Avon playing Shakespeare. But then we moved down to London halfway through the year and uh, performed new plays. And so the repertoire consisted of the best new English writing and um, and the Shakespeare performances. And they did tend to bounce off each other. So the Shakespeare became more kind of relevant uh, in terms of um, hearing, hearing a in, a, in a, a new social context. And the, the new writing became more aware of classical structure and uh, discipline. So the, the two things fit into each other very very well, I thought. And uh, so when I, even when I founded the Nimrod and it was mostly new Australian plays, we did at least one classic a Shakespeare every year and later a Chekhov, uh, etc., just to remind ourselves of our tradition and the, the high standards that have been reached in the past And can we emulate those high standards and achieve something similar in in the new writing?
1: I've heard it said by a linguist that uh, as the English language evolves, we're probably only a century or two away to the point where uh, Shakespeare will need subtitles to be understood by the the typical uh, audience member. Uh, where do you stand on the question of how modernised a Shakespeare production should be? Uh, it seems pretty normal now that you do modern costumes, but changing the language is, uh, is, is a bit more controversial. And, and then, of course, there's how you deal with some of the, uh, the issues around sexism, racism, anti-Semitism and the like.
0: Yes. Um, well, in terms of the language, it, it is really modern English. I mean, is one of the creators of modern English, um, it isn't so much the, uh, the language, it's some of the, the references uh, we don't get unless you know your King James Bible and your Ovid uh, to some extent. You're going to miss a lot of the references. It's the syntax, and of course, the vocabulary has changed and is changing all the time. Uh, just as with Chaucer, we now need to be translated. I think it will be the same with Shakespeare in, you know, uh, God knows how many years' time. Uh, some people will say it's necessary even now, they can't understand it. But I think the actor's job is to make it comprehensible and most of it is. It's just certain passages are, are very um, uh, dense, very intellectually um, challenging and sometimes the vocabulary, uh, the words have just dropped out of, out of use um, and language is evolving so quickly all the time that uh, I hear young people talking nowadays and I'm missing half what they're talking about because their frame of reference is different to mine and a lot of the words they use I haven't heard before. So I think, well, there's not much of a gap between, there's a bigger gap between, um, you know, them and me than between me and Shakespeare, frankly.
1: You need uh, subtitles for millennials. But um, how do you feel about performances that uh, change Shakespearean language?
0: Well, I think it should be done minimally. I think you can translate the uh, the occasional word or phrase to make it more meaningful, but I think we should hang on to it as long as we can. As long as we we keep speaking it and listening to it, it will remain alive. If we don't hear it enough or read it enough or speak it enough, then it becomes more and more arcane and uh, remote from us. And that's why I think I encourage the constant performance of it uh, so people can hear and, uh, you know, uh, people will intuit a lot, even if they don't understand every word, they will get a very large part of the, the, the general meaning of what is being said.
1: So your, your book, Some Achieve Greatness, uh, draw, comes out of a series of corporate talks that you'd given and uh, drawing lessons from Shakespearean characters for leadership. I wanted to uh, take you through a few of those uh, characters, beginning with uh, Henry V, and, and I thought that... Before we lead into your lessons, uh, I might get you just to uh, read a, a passage, uh, perhaps the one uh, the night before the Battle of Agincourt?
0: Yes, certainly. I think this is a very good example of, uh, of leadership. That's why I included it in my book. It, uh, it talks about getting out of your ivory tower and uh, mingling with the troops, basically, and listening to what, they, uh, what, is, what, what, what concerns them, what they're anxious about. So, I'll read the passage and then we can discuss uh, what I can take from it. So, this is the night before the Battle of Agincourt, and Henry is walking around the camp uh, of his soldiers and listening to what they're talking about. The poor, condemned English, like sacrifices by their watchful fires, sit patiently and inly ruminate the morning's danger and their gesture sad, investing lank-bean cheeks and war-worn coats, presenteth them unto the gazing moon so many horrid ghosts. Oh, now, who will behold the royal captain of this ruined man, walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent, let him cry praise and glory on his head. For forth he goes and visits all his host, bids them good morrow with a modest smile, and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. Upon his royal face there is no note how dread an army hath surrounded him, nor doth he dedicate one jot of color unto the weary and all watch at night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint with cheerful semblance and sweet majesty that every wretch, pining and pale before, beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks. A largesse universal like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to every one thawing cold fear that mean and gentle all, behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of Harry in the night.
1: Just superb. And what do you take from that?
0: Well, I think it's um, knowing uh, that good leadership is really caring about the people who you're working with and the people who are working for you, understanding their concerns, listening to what, uh, what ails them and uh, spreading a cheerful optimism and confidence, even in times, of especially at times of crisis, uh, get down on the factory floor, um, you know, really um, mingle with the troops, don't don't stand aloof, don't, um, you know, play low status, be, be one of the gang, but leading, but leading from the front as part of the team. Um, I think people will take tremendous encouragement from leaders who do that and, uh, you know, get out there and don't, uh, hide in their office or um, play status, but really show great concern and really and truly listen to what concerns you.
1: I feel as though in an age of email, it's harder than ever before for uh, leaders to, to bestow a little touch of Harry in the night. Uh, people are so caught up in the tasks before them that uh, walking the factory floor becomes something that they'd like to do but just don't make time for
0: well, then it's up to them, isn't it, to sort out their priorities. I think one has to do both, of course, the emails, et, cetera, et cetera. But that can be But you can build a fence around you. You can um, start to micromanage from a distance. Uh, and I think that's very, very dangerous. Uh, people do really appreciate your, um, you know, uh, mingling among them, talking to them, above all, listening to them. That human contact is, is so vital. And I think that's one of the things we're going to find out about uh, people working from home more and less office time, less camaraderie, less company culture. We haven't seen yet what those uh, ramifications will be. But I think that there will be an interesting uh, development in company culture in the future that people won't be in the office and uh, chatting at coffee break and uh, seeing the boss walking down the corridor. It'll be all much more remote. And whether or not that's a good thing, we'll find out in the future.
1: Yes, it's hard to imagine people will pluck comfort from the looks of their boss on Zoom. That's
0: <laughs> exactly right. Uh,
1: you uh, you talk also about uh, Julius Caesar and uh, and about uh, uh, the way in which he's both arrogant and overreaching but also trusting and generous, uh, and uh, particularly his ability to, to judge character. Uh, I wonder if we might start off with, uh, with that passage in which, Uh, Caesar notices Cassius watching from the sidelines and then speaks to Mark Antony.
0: Yes, yes, that's a very interesting um, piece because we tend to think of Caesar as being aloof and arrogant and narcissistic, which indeed he was. But none of Shakespeare's characters are that simplistic. They are all well-rounded and have different sides to them. So as well as those faults, Caesar does have a very shrewd eye. He's a good judge of character and um, you know, he, um, he can sense danger when it's around him. So uh, he spots Cassius in the crowd, and he uh, says to Mark Antony, "'Let me have men about me that are fat. "'Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. "'He thinks too much. "'Such men are dangerous. "'He reads much. "'Such men as he are never at heart's ease, whilst they behold are greater than themselves, "'and therefore are they very dangerous then he goes on to add, I rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear, for always I am Caesar. So his arrogance does flash out his narcissism, like, you know, they can't touch me, I'm not afraid of anybody. But he has betrayed just a little earlier his suspicions uh, of, uh, you know, conspiracy.
1: What do you take in leadership terms from Caesar?
0: Well, I think um, Shakespeare, for, for his own purposes, Uh, really gives Caesar a pretty pretty bad rap. Caesar was uh, venerated throughout the Renaissance as one of the nine worthies of antiquity, a model of integrity and virtue. But Shakespeare deliberately makes him uh, just verging on civility, vain, arrogant, narcissistic, um, and therefore, um, you know, ripe for uh, for downfall. Uh, I think the lessons one can learn from Caesar are... um, First of all, know when your time is up. Uh, uh, Shakespeare does exaggerate Caesar's age. In fact, uh, he wasn't that old when he was killed. I think he was 52, maybe. Um, so uh, Shakespeare deliberately pushes the point that uh, he's, he's past his prime, he should step down. He shouldn't be looking for further glory and honors. How much do you need? How, how, when is enough not sufficient? How much more do you want in terms of adulation, particularly? Um, And also I think uh, Caesar's aloofness and removedness is uh, a fault, unlike Henry V, who uh, plays low status, mingles with the troops, Caesar keeps himself very much aloof and uh, looks for kind to establish a kind of a a, a semi-divine status for himself. So I'd say that arrogance is one of the greatest faults in leadership, and it has many manifestations in terms of not listening, in terms of uh, giving people short shrift. Um, uh, uh, disregarding what their opinions are, refusing to delegate—all of those things are, are betrayals of arrogance. And uh, I think arrogance is one of the, the the worst faults a leader can exhibit.
1: You've played Richard the Third a number of times, and and I think you've said before that Richard III is is one of the easier Shakespeare characters to uh, to to play, uh, if if that's uh, can 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 be said. Uh, and uh, you uh, you have a, a passage in uh, in your book uh, from Richard uh, Richard the third um, finally uh, facing the inevitability of his eternal damnation uh, yes
0: um, Richard the third is uh, an easy character in the sense that he's fairly uh, uncomplicated um, I wouldn't say one-dimensional but uh, he does tell you exactly what what he is and what he's feeling and uh, he's determined to be a villain. There's no sort of uh, subtlety about that. I think it's a kind of a, a sketch for Macbeth who does uh, similar actions, is similarly murderous, but is so uh, conscience-stricken and uh, you know, becomes uh, an insomniac and uh, more and more paranoid as the play goes on. Richard doesn't quite get that far, but nevertheless, I think this particular speech is kind of a sketch for what Macbeth goes through in that much more mature play. So this is uh, Richard the night before the Battle of Bosworth um, has a nightmare as all the, the, this, the ghosts of his victims come back to haunt him. And uh, he wakes from his nightmare and says, "'My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, "'and every tongue brings in a several tale, "'and every tale condemns me for a villain. "'Perjury, perjury in the highest degree, "'murder, stern murder in the direst degree, all several sins, all used in each degree, throng to the bar, crying, "All guilty, guilty!" I shall despair. There is no creature loves me, and if I die, no soul will pity me.
1: Oh, it's black! What do you, uh, what do you take from Richard? Is he just an example to be of what to be avoided?
0: Yes, very much so. I think. Uh, um, you have to look out for people's uh, private agendas. Richard's great skill is in charming everybody. Uh, and in the, in the performance of it, I think one has to remember that, the people are totally bewitched and charmed by him. Uh, his his um, sense of humour, his, uh, his ability with wit and language are quite captivating. And I think one has to just be aware, if you're dealing with someone like Richard, what's he up to? What's his, what's his personal agenda? Uh, you know? That, that, that calls for someone to be a fairly shrewd judge of character and most of richard's victims um, are quite willingly deluded i think there's something something in it for them if they back him uh, he'll they can get on his coattails and uh, you know uh, get somewhere themselves and that's a huge mistake because he uh, he doesn't honor any of these promises he, uh, he will betray anybody uh, in terms of getting to the top so he become a bit of a byword really among uh, you know politicians and uh, social commentators, you just mentioned Richard III and they were basically exactly what traits you're discussing or talking about.
1: You speak about King Lear as being the play that you feel has never been done perfectly uh, and a role which is extraordinarily difficult to play. Uh, I wonder if I might uh, draw you to uh, to, to uh, a, a, a passage that you quote in your book on the, from King Lear, uh, which is a point at which uh, he begins to uh, get a sense of, of his own place in the world.
0: Yes, uh, certainly. I mean, Lear is, I think, the greatest, the most profound of all Shakespeare's plays, the most challenging and therefore the most difficult to bring off. It is just uh, it is so, it goes so deep. Uh, And Leah, again, uh, as a leader, is uh, entirely made up of narcissism and arrogance and self-regard and status. Uh, He has what he regards as some sort of divine status. And it's only when he's reduced to um, being thrown out into the the storm um, and loses all his authority, all his power, that he becomes to realise he's just a man like anybody else. And he says, when the rain came to wet me once and the wind to make me chatter. When the thunder would not peace at my bidding, there I found them. There I smelt them out. Go to. They are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. It is a lie. I am not ague-proof.
1: The phrase ague-proof, so beautiful. And I I, th- I think think of all the other ways in which ague is used in that in that era, and uh, and, and no one would... No one else would think to put the word proof behind it. It's uh, it's exquisite. Um, but uh, Lear himself, uh, what do we take from him uh, for, for those who are interested in leadership?
0: I think uh, listen to good advice is the main thing. And again, we come back to arrogance as being the, the main uh, flaw in a leader. Um, you have to listen to the experts, listen to good advice. Um, Lear is surrounded by people who are wiser than he is, uh, Kent, his most loyal supporter, offers him good advice. His daughter, Cordelia, speaks her mind and therefore is, is banished for speaking out. Uh, even, even the fool, who is his uh, kind of court jester, is smarter and wiser and can see what's going on and tries to give Leah advice. And he ignores all of them. And I think uh, the hence his downfall, if he had listened to any of them, um, he would have, uh, you know, been a very different person, and there, would be, there wouldn't be a play, frankly. And I think we see that all around us in uh, leaders who uh, refuse to listen to advice they don't want to hear, whether it's on climate change or, um, you know, uh, vaccination or whatever. It takes someone like Donald Trump, doesn't want to listen to anybody's advice on anything. Donald always knows best, and I think, um, you know, that is perhaps a, a very, very major flaw in a leader. Go to the experts. Go for the good advice. Um, you know, don't don't um, play ball with uh, you know people's opinions, but really uh, take the good ones on board and act accordingly.
1: You have a chapter in your book called Integrity and in Humanity, in which you uh, you talk about some of the characteristics of Brutus, uh, and there you include a, a passage uh, from Mark Antony uh, spoken over Brutus's corpse. I wonder if I might get you to read that pa- passage and, and then tell us a little about what Brutus uh, says about great leadership.
0: Uh, yes, uh, this is interesting because it comes at the very, very end of the play. It is the, one of the final speeches of the play. And Mark Antony has been, of course, opposed to Brutus. He has, uh, he has hunted him down with his army and defeated him and Brutus commits suicide, but over his body, Mark Antony delivers a very uh, generous um, epitaph, I think. This was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. His life was gentle, and the elements so mingled in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man.
1: Would you like to be uh, re- remembered in uh, in such a way?
0: I couldn't think of anything better. I think it's an extraordinary, um, wonderful compliment and summation of Brutus's good qualities. <clears throat> I think Brutus is the noblest Roman of them all, and he does act according to his uh, conscience, even though it tortures him because he's called upon to uh, assassinate his one of his best friends, his mentor. Uh, Julius Caesar, a I man he admires enormously, but uh, has become convinced that Caesar is a danger to the state and uh, is verging, the state is verging on a tyranny unless Caesar is removed. And uh, he can see no other way except by Caesar's assassination. So it's a, a very, very <clears throat> wrenching decision for Brutus and one that he, he does eventually take in, in good faith.
1: John, let me uh, wrap our conversation up to a close with a, a few questions I ask each of my guests. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: <laughs> oh, my God, where do I start? <clears throat> I would say probably uh, the most uh, important thing would be to be um, f- gentle and fair and kind to people you grow up with. There's a, a, a temptation to ride roughshod uh, over competition in your, you know, Attempted climb to the top, but uh, you'll always regret uh, unkindnesses or ungenerous things that you do.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: Oh, now there's a huge uh, volume there because I was brought up a Catholic, a very a, a, quite a devout Catholic until the age of about the early twenties, and then slowly started to unpick it little by little. It took a lot of unpicking, I must say, but I guess by now, at the age of eighty, I would call myself a, a humanist. And uh, one who doesn't have any belief in any um, supernatural plane at
1: all. I found it interesting in uh, Maggie O'Farrell's *Hamnet* the uh, dis- the way in which uh, religion served as a as a solace for Anne Hathaway after the the death of of Hamnet. Uh, did have you read the book? Do you have views on on? No, I haven't read
0: that book. I've heard about it, but I haven't got around to it yet. But of course, it, uh, it has. It, it, it's entirely conjecture uh, we know nothing about it in Hathaway at all so the book is a fiction after all but of course it can be very um, you know in, an informed fiction
1: I think. What I love about it is the it has the most exquisite description of a mother's pain at losing her child that I have ever read um, it's you know of course you're, you're bawling as you as you're reading it, um, but it also then suggests that that experience of losing Hamnet uh, might have uh, then propelled some of, some of Shakespeare's depths of tragedy, uh, and the book is focused around. The play Hamlet, of course, but uh, I was thinking about it when you were talking about Lear as well, and, and the, the the extent of the, the the emotional range that Shakespeare is able to plumb and in, uh, uh, in King Lear. Uh, flipping around, uh, when are you most happy?
0: Well, I'm happiest. Um... Well, I think this would be a very common one when I'm with the entire family, some sometime like Christmas or a big family birthday uh, or celebration, when I have my daughters and all the grandchildren and everybody in the family around. That's when I think uh, this is what life's really all about.
1: Does the Bell family put on performances at that stage?
0: I'm afraid they do. There's no discouraging people from performing and... Uh, but uh, as they get older, they become a bit more self-conscious and performances are a bit more discreet. But when they're very small, they're absolutely wild and outrageous and they're most delightful.
1: What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um,
0: well, I, I, I do try to, um, to do a bit of meditation. Uh, I'm, but I'm not very good at it, but it takes a long time for to me to, uh, to unwind and, uh, and put my mind at peace. Uh, I do Pilates uh, when I can, can't right now at the moment, of course. Um, I have a dog who's very active and he needs four walks a day. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that because without him, I think I might get around to it.
1: Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Uh, look, it's a very common one. I'm sure that, uh, most people would have this one, dark chocolate. Um, I know it's, uh, there should be a, a limit to it, but I find it very hard to draw the line when that limit has been reached.
1: And finally, John, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: You know, that's a hard one. I can't think of any one person. I can think of a a gallery of people, going from back from certain uh, school teachers, um, some of of the older actors I've worked with, whom I learned not just my craft, but I learned how to behave in the rehearsal room, how to be uh, a gentleman. in the the workplace. Uh, A couple of people I owe a lot to uh, in that area. And a couple of people I've come across just as neighbors and as friends who have taught me uh, a lot about generosity and and caring for each other. So there's no one person, but I'm grateful to a, a whole gallery of them.
1: John Bell, uh, Australian living treasurer and uh, thespian extraordinaire, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast today.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Sheridan Harbridge and Frank Ostaseski. We've just passed our 150th episode, so we're asking listeners to fill in a three-minute survey to help us improve the podcast. You can find the survey link in the show notes. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.